It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, June 9th, 2023. I'm Andrew Hames, and this is Raven News. Rescue divers have recovered a fourth body from the scene of a charter fishing accident that happened over Memorial Day weekend. Thursday morning, Alaska State Troopers reported that salvage crews working to recover the outboard motors from the wrecked vessel spotted the body near Low Island. At 11 a.m., divers recovered the boat's captain, 32-year-old Morgan Robidoux. Robidoux is the fourth deceased person recovered from the scene of the accident since the search began on May 28th, after Kingfisher Charters notified the Coast Guard that one of their boats was overdue. The body of 57-year-old Maury Akawili was recovered from the scene on May 28th near the vessel. His wife, 53-year-old Danielle Akawili, and her sister, 56-year-old Brandy Chow, were recovered from the boat three days later. The last passenger, 61-year-old Robert Solis, still hasn't been found. Robidoux's body will be sent to the state medical examiner's office for an autopsy. His next of kin have been notified. The Coast Guard continues to investigate the circumstances surrounding the accident. The National Marine Fisheries Service hasn't ruled out the possibility of opening the summer troll season for king salmon in southeast Alaska, despite a federal judge's recent ruling to the contrary. During a meeting held Wednesday in Sitka, NOAA's Regional Fisheries Administrator for Alaska, John Curland, told a room full of trollers that the agency was working hard to correct the problems identified in a federal lawsuit brought by a conservation group in Washington state. If successful, southeast trollers might be able to harvest king salmon this summer. If not on the traditional date of July 1, then possibly in August. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. To get a feel for the impact of the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit on southeast trollers, try sitting in a room filled with them. Grizzled oldsters, seasoned men and women hardened by life on the ocean, well-known fisheries advocates, young families, and a baby or two. John Curland is the regional administrator for fisheries in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which, among other agencies, oversees the National Marine Fisheries Service. That's a lengthy title, but Curlin said that he is a neighbor and he gets it. First off, I know that there's been just a huge amount of concern uh, about uh, the implications of this suit and the potential for the troll fishery not to be able to open. Um, I, I live in Juneau. Um, I have a sense of how important this fishery is for uh, Southeast Alaska, for a lot of small businesses, a lot of families, a lot of communities. Um, it's a big deal. The Washington state-based Wild Fish Conservancy sued the National Marine Fisheries Service in federal court in 2020, arguing that nymphs had violated the Endangered Species Act by failing to fully account for the impact of southeast trolling on king salmon, an important prey for a small population of endangered orcas in Puget Sound called southern resident killer whales. The Conservancy won and a judge ordered southeast Alaska king salmon trolling shut down until the problem could be remedied. And it's just commercial trolling for Chinook in southeast Alaska. No other commercial or sport fishery anywhere from Alaska to California is affected. It's a baffling strategy, and Curland is as surprised as anyone that the suit got this far. We're all sort of incredulous that this suit is focusing on southeast Alaska fisheries when um, there are a lot bigger threats that southern resident killer whales are facing than 
than what's happening in these fisheries. The Southeast Alaska fisheries are a really small contributor to the challenges that Southern resident killer whales face in their recovery. But uh, anyway, it is what it is. Kurland explained the nuts and bolts of the lawsuit, which were already known to many in the standing room only crowd in Sitka's Harrigan Centennial Hall, how it stemmed from a 2019 biological opinion prepared by nymphs and the associated incidental take statement required to conduct a fishery that could affect an endangered species. He then took questions, some tough questions. Deborah Lyons is the representative from the Alaska Trollers Association to the Pacific Salmon Treaty. She wondered how the National Marine Fisheries Service could be outflanked by a nonprofit conservation organization on a question of environmental policy. So when I look at what happened in Washington, NIMS, who are the experts on fisheries, issued an opinion that said the Southeast fishery, yes, takes some threatened salmon and takes some salmon that are prey of an endangered whale, but in the opinion of National Marine Fisheries Service, it was not a significant threat to any of those species. And yet a group was allowed to appeal to a judge and provide hand-selected bits of data that the judge found more compelling than the opinion of the agency, the federal agency that's supposed to render these decisions. Now, how does that happen? Curlin responded that the Endangered Species Act has a provision that allows any citizen to bring suit, and that's what the Wild Fish Conservancy did. Although the National Marine Fisheries Service has appealed to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and asked for a decision in June, it's unlikely that the court would act so fast. Instead, Curland, without giving away too much legal strategy, said NIMPS had one trump card it could play. The agency has the authority under the Endangered Species Act to issue a new biological opinion and a new incidental take statement. Um, it could be reviewed by the court. The court doesn't need to approve it up, up front, uh, but... Um, it's certainly possible that the plaintiffs will take issue with whatever we, whatever we put out um, and will ask the court to review it. Uh, but there is no, no uh, implicit requirement or, or explicit requirement for the court to approve it before it takes effect. This prompted troller Robert Bateman to drill down. It's my understanding that once the ITS and the new biop has been written, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can basically put that in effect straight away. Now, if that didn't happen before July 1st, could we maybe go fishing in August still? So your question is, if we are not able to get the new incidental take coverage in place by July 1st, but we get it in later, could there be an opening later in the season? Yes. Kurland was joined at the meeting by an attorney from the U.S. Department of Justice, which is representing the National Marine Fisheries Service, Kurland explained that the DOJ stepped in any time someone sues the government, and he said, I get sued all the time. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. You can hear John Kurland's entire update to trollers on the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit on our website, kcaw.org. Local children's book author Debbie Miller has published her 12th book, Glaciers Are Alive is all about tidewater glaciers. Miller knows a lot about them, She spent five years in Prince William Sound exploring fjords and researching glaciers as an artist-in-residence for the Forest Service. She joined KCAW for the morning interview on Thursday to discuss the book. Been around a lot of tidewater glaciers and um, love the environment. It's very dramatic. 
you know, always yeah. changing with the ice calving into the right. fjords and then all these animals mm-hmm. that are connected to that glacial world. In that time, Miller visited 17 tidewater glaciers, learning about the wildlife and the habitat associated with them. Based on that research, in 2018, Miller wrote a book for adults called A Wild Promise. But she didn't stop there. That was in 2018, and I thought, you know, kids really need a good book on what is a tidewater glacier. Yeah. How does how does the glacier form? Yeah. How does it carve out the you know the valleys and these mountains, and and what life um, does it support? Like Miller's previous eleven children's books, Glaciers Are Alive is illustrated by Alaska artist John Van Zyl of Eagle River. Miller will host a reading of the book at the Sitka Public Library on Saturday, June 10th at 10.30 a.m. A man who held a leadership position in a Ketchikan church is facing 14 felony charges of sexual assault of a minor. As KRBD's Reagan Miller reports, the man admitted his behavior to law enforcement. Please be aware the content of this story may be inappropriate for some listeners. 71-year-old Dwight Chris John of Ketchikan is being charged with first, second, and third-degree sexual abuse of a minor and incest. Alaska state troopers say John allegedly sexually abused a young family member when he visited the child's community on Prince of Wales Island or when the child came to visit him in Ketchikan. The victim, now a teenager, told their father that John had been sexually abusing them since the age of about nine. The father reported this to Alaska state troopers. The father told troopers that the most recent incident had been during this past Thanksgiving holiday. In a forensic interview, the child told investigators that the abuse would often happen when other family members went out to eat or when John would read a bedtime story or was otherwise alone with the child. John corroborated nearly all of the claims during an interview with investigators. He said that the abuse began when the child was five or six. John also said that he did it because the victim wanted him to and, quote, It was all for the child and, quote, it wasn't for me. The charging documents say that John is a church leader but did not name the church, although Clover Pass Community Church's website includes a photo of a man named Chris John on their Board of Governors page. Charging documents say that Dwight Chris John is also known as Chris John. The church did not immediately respond to requests for comment left via phone and email. John told the child's father that he almost decided not to take a church leadership position because of the alleged abuse, but he said he decided to because he felt God had forgiven him. A photo of the same man with the same name is listed online as a member of the Ketchikan Volunteer Rescue Squad's board of directors. A staff member also told KRBD that a Chris John recently resigned from their board of directors, but didn't want to comment further. Alaska state troopers were unavailable for comment, nor was the state's prosecuting attorney. An attorney for John is not listed in online court filings. John appeared in Ketchikan Superior Court on Wednesday, and Judge Christian Pickerel set a $500,000 appearance bond with a 10% cash requirement and a $250,000 performance bond. His next court appearance is set for June 16th. In Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. I'm Andrew Hames, and this has been Raven News.